But before we make a start, shall we uh, pray together? Let's pray. Father, we've just been singing that uh, naturally our eyes are darkened and that we need your light. Um, we need help. So please, Father, break into our hard and stony hearts and, and move us. Don't just uh, work in our heads, work in our hearts, we pray, that we might be changed as a result of what we hear tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you've ever had to live through an injustice or you're struggling with a particular injustice. There's one which is in the papers um, fairly recently, um, way back in, uh, in, well this isn't recently, but way back in, uh, in 1989 on the 14th of April, Liverpool were playing Notts Forest in the semi-finals of the FA Cup. Uh, they were at a stadium in Sheffield called Hillsborough. And uh, on that day, because it's a semi-final, loads and loads of people were, were coming uh, for the match. And, but the police, who are supposed to be managing the crowds, are doing a particularly poor job that day. I think when kickoff had begun, there were loads of their fans outside with their tickets still waiting to actually enter the stadium. And one of the senior officers there, he just got frustrated and, and opened one of the exit gates. And so into the stadium went around a thousand extra fans into the, into the seating area, which was already at max capacity, the stands. And as you can picture, when a thousand people get pushed into an area where there's no space to go, well, the fans at the very front, they got pushed right up against these, these metal barriers. It's called the Hillsborough disaster because it was tr- a tragedy. I believe 766 people were injured and 96 people were killed of pressure asphyxiation. It was a brutal, brutal day. But perhaps what made it worse was the fact that the police, instead of admitting and holding their hands up and saying, we made so many errors that day, instead they seemed to, to, to begin this elaborate cover-up. You might remember back in the, the late 80s, this was a time when soccer hooliganism was at, was at its sort of rife. And, and so it's very easy for the police to say, no, no, it's the fans' fault. And they fed these stories to, to the press, and you might remember the Sun headline uh, on the few days afterwards, which read, The Truth. And of course, it wasn't the truth. It wasn't the truth. For decades, the, the Liverpool fans had to live with this monumental miscarriage of justice, being, being accused of being at fault for the death of all of their friends on that day. And it is hard to live with injustice. Very hard. Well, as you know, in in April this past year, the fans were finally vindicated. An inquest ruled that the police had been negligent, culpable, and dishonest. And and crucially, those fans who were declared guilty, they, they are now declared not guilty. They were vindicated of the deaths of those 96 people. It took 27 long years of campaigning for those families, but eventually they were vindicated. They were declared not guilty. The question we're answering tonight is this. Who will God vindicate on the day when he comes to judge the world in justice? Uh, we heard last week, if you were here, that Jesus is the Son of Man. He's kind of returned to judge the world with justice. But on that day, who will be vindicated? Who will be declared 
not guilty. Well, you'll see from your handouts where we're going that the first group of people to be vindicated on that day will be those who pray persistently for justice. Follow with me in your Bibles to verse 1. It's on page uh, 1052. Verse 1 says this. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Literally, not lose heart. Like I said, last week's passage, Jesus says that he is the Son of Man. He's the one who's been given all authority to judge the earth. But you might remember how Jesus said that they're going to have to wait for him. In fact, that his believers, that they're going to long for his return. He said that the time is coming when you, when you yearn for the days of the Son of Man. But you will not see them. It seems as if there's going to be a long period of delay. And in that time, we're going to experience all sorts of frustrations and all sorts of injustices. And some of which might lead us to lose heart and give up praying. I don't know, maybe that's, maybe that's you here tonight. Maybe you're, you're suffering in, in some way, physically or mentally. Perhaps you have a, a experiencing a, an ongoing besetting sin and it is crushing you, it's getting you down. Maybe you feel very much alone as a Christian in your, in your workplace. Perhaps you feel marginalized, mocked, persecuted even. And you're wondering, in light of all that, you're beginning to ask yourself, does God care? Does he care? Can he make things right? How long am I going to have to wait? Well, verse 2, he tells the story. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept on coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. Now it's a farcical scene that Jesus presents for us here. We meet a judge who has no regard whatsoever for justice. Liz, do you know any judges like that? Sadly, yes. I was hoping you'd say no. Oh no, really. But for this man, he really doesn't. He doesn't care what God thinks of him. He's quite happy being unjust. He doesn't care what people think of him. So he doesn't care if he's unpopular. This guy's hopeless. We have no idea how he got his job. Maybe Liz is wondering how on earth those people got their job. But clearly this judge is only in it for himself. He wouldn't lift a finger to help anyone unless it benefited him. That's this judge. But then we meet the widow. You might know that back then women were entirely dependent on their fathers or their husbands or their male offspring. So if your husband died, it is vital that his estate is passed on to you. If not, you're in the ultimate state of of vulnerability and deprivation and need. And and apparently we we know that many widows back in those days, that they they would basically sell themselves into prostitution. They would have to in order to survive. In this story, what makes the matter worse is that someone seems to be capitalising on this widow's misfortune. Do you notice he has an adversary? We're not told much about him, but perhaps we can guess. Perhaps he's, he's, he's latched on to her state, and, and maybe he's, he's, trying to, he's trying to get hold of what is owed to her. 
perhaps her husband's estate or something like that. So she's desperate. This enemy is, is making her life hell. So what does she do? She goes to the only judge in town. Oh dear. Well, we can picture her visiting his office. And she's given a number by the receptionist. She sits down in the, in the waiting room and she notices all around her all various well-heeled looking people. Uh, people with, with these paper envelopes full of cash ready to slip across the desk to the judge. Eventually, um, her number is called and she enters through these posh-looking glass doors and she sits down and before the judge and she says to him, please, grant me justice against my adversary. But looking at her, he sees that she's in no position to grease the wheels. She can't even pay the legal fee, so he refuses her and he sends her away. But she's undeterred. She persists. In fact, she goes full Erin Brockovich on him. She endlessly calls his office for further appointments. She, she bombards him with letters and emails. She's there at the door of his office, first thing in the morning and late at night. And eventually, verse 4 happens. Verse 4. For some time, he refused. But finally, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. So he gives in, not because he fears God, nor because he cares about justice or what people think of him. No, he gives in simply because this widow is just so irritating. In fact, the word here in verse 5 to describe how she keeps on bothering him is the same word for, for giving someone a black eye. He's saying, this woman's giving me a metaphorical black eye. I just want to see the end of her. So he gives her justice against her adversary. Verse 6. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night. Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. Jesus is making one of those how much more arguments. Are you familiar with these how much more arguments? He's making a comparison, if you like. In the story, we have this hopeless, unjust judge. And yet our God, our God, who is the judge of all, he's the very definition of justice, isn't he? And in the story we have this powerless and insignificant widow. And yet we, God's people, are his chosen ones. We couldn't be more significant to him. So if, if through this widow's persistence... This insignificant person is given justice by this hopeless judge. How much more will God's chosen ones receive justice when they cry out to him? How much more? Will will, will he put them off forever? Will he delay justice for his elect? No. There's a comfort here and a challenge I want to draw out from, from these verses The comfort is this. God hears the helpless. He hears the helpless. I don't know. It might be that crying out for justice is something which is pretty alien to to, to most of us. But believe me, around the world, 
today, this week, experiencing injustice is, is, is part and parcel of being a Christian. It's what you sign up for when you follow Christ. Did you know in Russia this past week, Putin passed a new law requiring that Christians must get written permission from the state before they can have a conversation about, with someone about what they believe. If they don't do that, if I want to have a conversation with uh, my unbelieving friend uh, and I, I, say, I want to talk about Jesus, if I don't do that, I will be, fa- uh, I'll be fined £580 in UK money. And so will my church. That happened this week. During Turkey, this last week, around 12 church buildings were suddenly seized by the state, allegedly to help against the the Kurdish uh, separatists, but all the Christians know it's not really about that. And they're doubtful they're ever going to see access to those buildings again. You know, in Pakistan, every single week, police collude with the persecution of Christians. They often don't even lift a finger when when their houses are burnt and their goods are stolen and their wives and children are raped. They imprison pastors and their families on the the flimsiest of charges and they're they're the people in charge of justice. Around the world, believe me, Christians are crying out for vindication like those Hillsborough supporters. They're praying for the Son of Man to come back Soon. Come, Lord Jesus. And so Jesus says in verse 8, God will see they get justice. And quickly. He will come soon. He will make sure of it. Now, I'm sure hardly any of us here today are suffering anything like that. That sort of level of persecution. But in our day-to-day lives, we do still experience injustice, don't we? In the world's eyes, maybe you're here tonight and you're feeling very much like this widow. Unimpressive, powerless, insignificant. But if you're a follower of Jesus tonight, remember you are chosen by him. You are one of his elect, which means God hears you. He hears you. He hears the helpless. There's also a challenge here. That's the comfort. But the, the, the challenge here, I want to focus on as well. Did you see at the end of verse 8, Jesus asks his disciples a question. He asks them, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? The challenge is that Jesus equates being prayerless with being faithless. He equates being prayerless with being faithless. He asked that whether when he returns, will will he find his church crying out for justice? Will he find them exhibiting their faith in him? And of course the answer is clearly yes, around the world. The majority of Christians are crying out, come Lord Jesus, come, please come. But I guess he asked the question to challenge perhaps those of us who feel no need to pray. Perhaps that's us here. Perhaps we consider ourselves fairly self-sufficient. I was chatting with some men this morning after the service, and they're saying, yeah, it's it's built into sort of our our psyche to be self-sufficient, to be standalone. I don't need anyone. Maybe we we feel so comfortable, so at ease, and we're so busy with all these other priorities that, that, that prayer just simply doesn't happen. 
Do you know, in 2010, the UK Department of Statistics, I think they have a lot of time on their hands, but they, they revealed how the average Brit uses their time. Apparently, we spend 28 hours a week on our TVs, 10 hours a week traveling, 8 hours on the internet, 1 hour sorting out our pets. Which means, I reckon there are many weeks when I've spent less time with God in prayer than most people do clearing out their gerbil cage. Which is a tragedy, isn't it? The American pastor John Piper tweeted this recently. He says, one of the great uses of Facebook and Twitter will be to prove on the last day that our prayerlessness was not from a lack of time. How true. But if our church building tomorrow was seized by the state, we would urgently gather to pray, wouldn't we? If for tomorrow a law was passed which meant we're not able to preach, we're not able to share our faith, we would gather to pray, wouldn't we? If we're being routinely beaten up and our wives raped for being Christian, we would gather to pray, wouldn't we? Well, friends, what sort of tragedy would it take? What will it take to, to get us as a church persistently crying out to God like this widow in the story? What sort of crisis will it take to, to bring us to our knees? Because like this widow, we do have an adversary. We do have an enemy. But I think Satan's means of oppressing the church in this country, it's not so much through state oppression and persecution. No, I think his... His tools are far cleverer. I believe he wishes us to drown in our own sense of self-sufficiency and ease. So Jesus asks us, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith in your home? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith in our church? Because God will vindicate those who pray persistently for justice. That's a promise. Well, the next parable tells us more about whom uh, the Son of Man will vindicate when he returns. And it's those who pray humbly for mercy. Look down with me to verse 9, if you would. Verse 9. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else... Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Sounds like the beginning of a joke, doesn't it? It's a similar, it's a similar farcical scene to the last one. He, remember, he's, he's talking to his disciples here. And you might know that the Pharisees, they really were the very best of society. They were wealthy. They were educated. They were connected. They were religious. These are the sort of guys you want to go into business with. Girls, these are the sort of men you, you want to marry. Yeah? And so you can imagine him as he's walking up Temple Mount. People would have been shaking his hand. People were saying, hello. People love this guy. He's great. But then there's the tax collector as well. And the tax collectors, you might know, were the scum of society. They, they, they were Jewish people, right? Who, who, who took money off their own people and then gave it to their Roman oppressors. And they're notoriously corrupt and dishonest in, in their doing of it. So imagine, if you would, a, a Jew in Nazi Germany working for the Nazis against his own people. 
Right? That, that might give you a level of, of an idea of, of the level of derision these guys would have faced. It, it, so as this tax collector walks up Temple Mount, people would have hissed at him. They would have spat at him. They would have cursed under their breath. What are you doing here? What are you doing at the temple of God? Verse 11. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. Now, of course, it's true, wasn't it? By comparison to many people in society, this guy was a good and upright man. He didn't cheat on his tax return. He he didn't lie. He didn't steal. He didn't sleep around. He was faithful to his wife. He gave a lot of money to charity. He often uh, showed how religious he was by by giving up food and fasting. Surely, we would think, surely this guy was a shoo-in for God's kingdom. Surely this is the bookie's favourite. But his prayer reveals a lot about how he thought he would get saved. Notice his prayer, it's all about him. The personal pronouns, I love that when Katie read, she emphasised them really well, didn't she? His, the eyes repeat, it's all about him. His prayer isn't so much a prayer, it's, it's a boast about his own spiritual self-sufficiency. And inevitably, his self-righteousness led him to look down his long nose at everyone else around him he didn't quite cut the mustard verse 13 but the tax collector stood at a distance he wouldn't even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said God have mercy on me a sinner in contrast to the Pharisee, we can picture up the front, hands in the air, being seen. The, ta- the tax collector is at the back and he's skulking behind a pillar. He fears what people would say if they saw him there. And he also fears God. He feels very much distanced from God. He, he, feels, he, he feels wrong for, he, for him to be in the building, in this holy place. And he's so ashamed of his sin. His heart is broken and he's aware of his guilt before God and he can't even look up to heaven. He's just staring at the floor and he's beating his breast and his prayer. It couldn't be more different to the Pharisees, could it? God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Literally in the Greek, God, atone for me, a sinner. God, propitiate for me, a sinner. Remember, he's standing in the temple. It's, it's the place of sacrifice for sin. And he knows that his sin, it's got to be punished. God has got to be just. He knows that it, wrath ought to be poured out on him for his sin. But he knows he can't atone himself. So he cries like, God, do it for me. Do it for me, because I can't do it myself. Do it for me. And of course, this is why Jesus came. As he's telling this story, Jesus is walking the road to Jerusalem. The Son of Man came to die, to suffer, to to atone for our sin, to, if you like, propitiate God's wrath, to, to take it upon himself in order that we guilty sinners might be given that innocent verdict, vindicated even though we're far off, that we might be brought near to him. 
You know, every religion and worldview and, and philosophy, they're, 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 they're spelt the same way. They're all spelt the same way. Two letters, D-O, do. They all say do. You've got to follow some pillars. You've got to sort of go on some pilgrimage. You've got to follow some magical steps or something like that. And eventually you'll reach paradise, nirvana or enlightenment or whatever the, the end goal might be. They all say do. Two letters. Jesus and Christianity is four, word, four letters. D-O-N-E. Done. Because only Jesus, with, with arms stretched out for us, says it is finished. There's nothing more left to do. You, you can't add to my death. You can't improve upon it. You can't top it up. It is done. It is done. Which makes verse 14 perhaps one of the most shocking verses in the entire New Testament. Verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The shock here is that as the tax collector walks down Temple Mount, being spat at by everyone he walks past, he left justified, vindicated, not guilty, because God had atoned for him. Whereas the Pharisee, the good Pharisee, the guy everyone loves, he went home not justified. He went home guilty before God because he in his pride thought he could save himself. Once again, I want to draw a challenge for us and, 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 both, and also a comfort for us. The challenge is this. God punishes the proud God punishes the proud. The rub here for us is that we might talk a very good talk. We might walk a very good walk. We might look really impressive. We might work for a church. But on the day of the Son of Man, a heart which believes, actually, I deserve to be saved, will not be saved. How might we diagnose that sort of heart within us? That proud heart. How might we recognize that within ourselves? Let me ask us some questions. Like, like the Pharisee, do you feel the need to draw attention to your good deeds? Do we feel the need to, for, for people to recognize our position and our status? Or, or are we quite happy to be brutally honest about our brokenness and our sin? Are we able to talk about our need for grace? When we're at work or maybe at church, do we, do we notice the, the little unimpressive people around us? Do, do we notice the widows and the tax collectors in our midst? Or are, are we only engaging with people we deem worthy of our time? People like us, people on our level. And of course, the final question, do, do, do we pray? Do you pray? I remember hearing a talk about 10 years ago, but I remember it vividly. And it was on prayer. And at the end of the talk, the preacher said, the application here is not go and pray. It's a, he said it's a pointless application. Because if you don't feel the need to pray, you will not pray. You won't. A proud heart doesn't desire to pray. And that's an indicator 
story is told, it's an apocryphal story, I'm not sure if it ever happened, but the story is told of a Sunday school teacher who was teaching this very parable. And uh, she taught this, uh, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And at the end, she prayed with the boys and girls, and she prayed, Thank you, Lord. We are not like the Pharisee. <laughs> no. Of course, the point is, we are like him. We are, aren't we? The question is whether we'll recognize it and whether we'll repent of that. That's the challenge. God will punish the proud on the day he returns. Friends, here's the comfort, and here's the the, the note I want us to end on. The comfort is that God hears the humble. He hears the helpless widow. He also hears the humble tax collector. Now, I, I think this is going to be incredibly hard for some of us here to believe. Incredibly hard. Because maybe like this tax collector, you, you not only know academically your guilt before God, you, you acutely feel it. Maybe you feel your sin. And some of us, we might think that in order for God to, to hear us, what we need to do is kind of grease the wheels a little bit. We need to have sort of build up enough spiritual capital uh, stuffed into white paper envelopes, passed across the desk to him, and then maybe, maybe God would hear our prayers. Perhaps we're thinking like that. And, um, you might know in, in folk Roman Catholicism, people commonly believe that you, you can't pray straight to God, and so you've got to pray to, to, to a deceased saint, who, some sort of holy guy who's died, and, and they might then put in a good word for you so that God might then hear your prayers. If that's true, what sort of monster is our God? No, God hears the humble. There's a church in Vienna, if you've been there, the, a Capuchin, the Capuchin church. And it's special because in the vaults is where they bury all of the Habsburg emperors. And when Emperor Franz Joseph died in, in 1916, this, there was this grand funeral. And uh, his cortege came right up to the church door, but there it halted. And on the outside of the door, the herald knocked on this enormous sort of wooden door with this big brass knocker. And from inside the church, the abbot shouted out, Who is knocking? And the herald knocked again. And yet again, the abbot shouted, Who is knocking? And the herald, he answered on behalf of the deceased emperor. I am Franz Joseph, emperor of Austria, king of Hungary. But the abbot interrupted him. I don't know you. Bit awkward for a state funeral. The herald repeated his introduction a bit more forcefully. I am Franz Joseph, Emperor of Austria, King of Hungary, Bohemia, Galatia, Dalmatia, Grand Duke of Transylvania, Margrave of Moravia, Duke of... Again, the abbot interrupted him. We still do not know who you are. At this point, the herald fell down on his knees and cried out, I am Franz Joseph, poor sinner humbly begging for God's mercy. The abbot cried, come on in. And the funeral continued. The whole scene had been choreographed by Franz Joseph himself before he died because he wanted his empire, he wanted his kingdom to know what the Christian gospel was. Whom will the Son of Man justify on that last day? Who will he vindicate Who will get that not guilty verdict? Not the impressive. Not the religious. Not the moral. Only those who cry out for mercy. Because God hears.
the humble and the helpless. That's good news. So let's pray. Father God, forgive our pride. Forgive our prayerlessness, our self-sufficiency, our self-righteousness, and the way we look down on others. Father, we do not deserve your mercy. But we pray humbly, please have mercy on us. We lift up to you the needs of your church around the world who are suffering. And with them we pray, come Lord Jesus. Lord, we know you're a just judge, so please, please bring justice speedily. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.